anxiety is never a fixed thing. It's always totally shapeable, totally malleable. Now what we're talking about is if they've done that now with different things, you can generalize that learning and you generalize it by literally feeling the alarm itself. So your attention starts to shift from what's different about every exposure, which is the trigger, to what's common about every exposure, which is the alarm. And the alarm is part of you. It's part of your body. So it's easier to open up and, and to practice accepting it. Before we get started, if you enjoy these episodes, you might want to explore more at OptimalWork.com. Our website offers unique content, tools, and exercises to help you thrive at work and beyond. We have an in-depth masterclass, which covers our entire theory of growth. We have daily recommendations for personalized advice, and we have a platform to help groups and organizations learn and practice optimal work together. You can get a free trial at optimwork.com. Now let's get started with today's episode. Hey, this is Sharif here with another episode of the Optimal Work Podcast, joined by Dr. Kevin Majors. Kevin, great to be back here with you again. Hey, Sharif. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Well, hey, Kevin, this is our uh, second episode in a promised three-episode series on overcoming anxiety. Uh, so in the last one, we covered fully feeling the fear. And in this one, we're going to talk about the next emotion to consider kind of a level up, which is daring. I think that's right. Sounds great. And then I guess another way we talk about it in the last one was a little bit more about challenge and uh, the whole thing of habituation that if you have a, a source of anxiety or a source of fear, you just kind of challenge yourself repeatedly and over time it will habituate. And this time it's more about mindfulness. So I guess my question, my first question to you is um, if challenge and repeatedly engaging this, you know, anxiety-inducing anxiety situation is infallibly leads to habituation and helps you to overcome that, you know, trigger situation, uh, then why is it even important to be mindful at all to feel the alarm, to feel the anxiety, to feel the fear? So why even go into this whole mindfulness thing at all? No, it's that's a great question. And it took the field a couple decades to start to realize what was missing. And what was missing was an element to make these exposure exercises more palatable. It's hard to get people, say you're afraid of, uh, someone who's afraid of uh, contamination with germs, it's kind of hard to get them to, you know, um, rub the bottom of their shoe and keep touching it to their face, their hand to their face, for very long periods of time. So now it's true that if you can find a way of triggering your anxiety by approaching a particular trigger and you keep doing it again and again and again, then it will habituate. That's guaranteed. The difficulty is it could take up to 90 seconds for it to, or 90 minutes for it to habituate. And that's a very long time. So what we learned over time was the better people are at feeling the sensation and welcoming it in a sense, diving into the midst of it and you know, letting it, like immersing their attention in the feeling while they're doing the triggering, then they get this entirely new experience 
where instead of taking 90 minutes to do an exposure, it takes something like 90 seconds. So that's a big advance. That means you can do several exposures in a row, perhaps. It also means that you're able to help people have this experience of feeling their alarm from the inside out. If you're just exposing people to particular triggers one after another, so you're afraid of heights, so now we're gonna do the second floor balcony and then the fourth floor balcony and we're gonna keep scaling up. What happens is it's just, it's, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a long process and you may not be able to generalize that learning to all the other situations. So yeah, if they could do the same exact heights exposure time after time, it would get better and better and better. How do you make sure that things generalize a little more? So to get people to do that, you have to learn, you use the triggering as a way to teach them now, here that they, they have the feeling of fear, they can dive into the middle of it and welcome it as fully as they can. And so what happens is, they are radically more effective at, at uh, habituating it. And they can also get the sense of flipping it around. That when you can welcome the signal of the alarm kind of from the inside out, you get a new sense of like, whoa, this is actually not that bad at all. This is, I can function just fine in the midst of the flame of anxiety. You know, so I, I, can, I can learn to enter into it and dive into it and even perform very well in the midst of it. And that's the feeling that is the passion called daring. So fear can flip into daring because you no longer see the fear itself as invincible, but you see it as invincible. And you actually see it more and more positively. And then it's like, then you get the sense of daring to have it. Mm. Okay, so the idea here is that uh, you have all, you might, a person might have all these different triggers, situation, you know, fear of heights, fear of public speaking, fear of spiders, and all these different situations, when they face them, the anxiety that they provoke or induce or trigger, it's all fundamentally the same anxiety. Like anxiety is just one thing. So by teaching them to just feel the anxiety mindfully more, you're actually helping them overcome all the different types of triggers, not just the fear of heights itself. But is that exactly. what you Okay. Yep. So if you can, the first thing is to get people to be willing to feel the fear, but they're still feeling it as if from the outside. And they do these exposures to triggers to hack it away and get it less and less and less. Well, but once they get a little more comfortable doing that, more and more they can start feeling the fear from the inside. So they can feel it. And then they find that, in fact, the more they eagerly try to feel it, the easier it is and the more quickly it habituates. That, I think, is the, book, the insight that gives the sense of daring, that now I can deliberately bring this on. So if you think of a, you know, say you have a child who's timid uh, and is, so has multiple fears to all these types of things, it's much easier to teach the child actually to start to get excited about that feeling. I think that's what amusement parks are for. So they might be afraid of all the rides, but you help them with the little rides, to, and then you help them like, learn to feel that fear and they'd be more eager to feel it and lean into it, and they can actually start having fun with it. Then they can start doing bigger ones to like bring it on more and more eagerly until they can finally do the the most scary rides and enjoy it. So I think that's I think that's kind of why we have amusement parks in some sense. But it's good that kids be able to 
feel the sense of daring, to be pushing limits while feeling the sense of fear. Like, um, you know, I don't know if people jump off cliffs anymore, but when I was growing up, that's what we would do. You'd go to the St. Croix River Valley, and, uh, and there are these cliffs you could jump off. It's probably all illegal now. Uh, but that was a great training in, in getting to enjoy the higher levels of fear, to lean into it, and, and to not see fear as just a barricade that tells me to flee, but no, I can dive into the feeling, and then I can actually get more daring to have it, and then use it to jump. Before we continue, a brief message. If you're benefiting from these discussions, please hit like and subscribe to our channel. Doing so helps us reach more people. So you're not just learning yourself, you're helping others discover a path to growth and flourishing too. Thanks so much for your support. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Can, can you uh, talk a little bit more about the, the mindfulness of the fear and what exactly that means? I guess when we talk about doing a golden hour in work, mindfulness has a sense of, okay, settling your attention into the present moment, um, anchoring your attention into your breath, uh, and then I know, I, I'm sure people, when they think of mindfulness in a tense situation, they'd think of, okay, I have to calm myself down. I have to slow my breathing down, slow my heart rate down. Um, can you give some pointers of how to exactly be mindful of anxiety or a fear in the most mm -hmm. helpful way? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think we have to always distinguish these two different modes. There's a doing mode that is aimed at control. And then there's the being mode, which is just aimed at welcoming and being with and being at, forming a kind of union. So that's a very left-brained or right-brained. So mindfulness cannot be done left-brained. So it falls apart. It's, it's incoherent as a practice. So people try to use mindfulness as a way of controlling their emotions. That's a left-brained use because it's about doing and control. It's not about feeling and welcoming and embracing. So people, they're, um, so, my, so in fact, it's like that in some ways, my, when emotions are very strong, your capacity to be mindful of them is actually a touchstone that proves whether you're using mindfulness in general correctly or incorrectly. So your approach to mindfulness in general is proved by what happens when emotions are strong. If you have the right doing, or I'm sorry, if you have the right kind of being approach, using mindfulness to simply be aware, fully aware, without judgment, which means no control attempts, so without an agenda, just being you know, with something, then when that actually is the right attitude to always be having with mindfulness. And that's what makes mindfulness so powerful. So, but if you try to use it as a strategy for accomplishing particular outcomes, like lowering your heart rate or lowering your anxiety level, it doesn't really work that well. And people will come back and say, I tried mindfulness and it didn't work. So again, really emotions are the touchstone for what is the right use of mindfulness. And are you generally using it well? So mindfulness always works. Mindfulness is a strategy that cannot fail because you can always practice it in any situation. So no matter what you're feeling, you can learn to bring mindfulness into it. So, and the cool thing is that when you do that, 
you activate a completely different part of your nervous system, your autonomic nervous system called the parasympathetic nervous system. So I do this all the time in my office. So if I have people with panic disorder, there are these maneuvers you can do to bring on panic attacks. The easiest is you get them to hyperventilate. So hyperventilation in people who have panic causes an imbalance in their, the acidity level of their blood, and that will reproduce a panic attack pretty well. And so you'll, and I can have them on the heart rate monitor and you can see their heart rate go up to the 140s or 150 uh, as, as they're having you know, this full-blown sympathetic activation. So that's the alarm that, that gets turned on. So what is beautiful is that at the same time that these people have a very strong sympathetic activation, I can walk them through mindfulness of the alarm sounding, mindfulness of the breath, using the breath to feel the signal of the alarm, and instantly you add on this new parasympathetic signal on top of it. What it looks like is suddenly their heart rate will plummet back to the 70s, but then it goes up to 140 again, and then as they inhale, and as they exhale, it goes down to the 70s again. So you get this huge sine wave going up and down uh, that, that is the signature of what's called parasympathetic activation. Parasympathetics always trump sympathetics. You always have the ability to turn on parasympathetics on top of sympathetics. So what that means is that this, um, you, ha you have this, uh, in fact, I think that's what daring is. The real feeling of daring is having parasympathetics activated at the same time as sympathetics. So yes, there is an alarm sounding and that makes part of that's what makes the top of the heart rate so high in the 140s. But at the same time, you're balancing it in a new way by welcoming it. So welcoming the alarm itself and practicing mindfulness of the alarm always can turn on parasympathetics on top of it. And then it just digests the whole activation of the alarm very rapidly. So that within, typically it's like 30 seconds, you've digested the entire thing and now they have the sine wave centered on 70 beats per minute or 60 beats per minute, whatever their baseline was. Um, anyway, it's fascinating. It's hard to maybe describe these things. I'm not sure if it's clear enough by my describing them. Uh, in the, uh, I actually show this in the masterclass on optimal work um, on, when we're talking about mindfulness. And you can see what the sine wave looks like in the video I play in those mindfulness lessons. Yeah, I, th I think we can probably layer it on here too um, so that people oh, great. can see it in the YouTube video. Uh, so, okay, Kevin, um, can you just actually just describe a little bit the sympathetics and sympathetics of, as you've touched on the impact on the heart rate that, mm -hmm. uh, the sympathetic and parasympathetic. So exactly, yeah. sympathetics, um, is going to lead to an elevated heart rate. So that, I assume that's related to more the adrenaline fight or flight, whereas parasympathetic. And that's like the pure fear, that's the pure fear response. Oh yeah. When your body is totally geared up for fight or flight so that yeah so you just see the heart rate go and stay high that you know maybe you know 130 beats a minute 140 beats a minute and so sympathetics essentially is just adrenaline that's i mean that's going to be most of what it is there are later effects of cortisol and other hormones and, and shifts that occur but uh, but the the main mover the prime mover of the sympathetic nervous system is the release of adrenaline into the bloodstream and that's what makes the heart rate rise but that's perfectly compatible with parasympathetics. 
And parasympathetics is primarily mediated through something called the vagus nerve. And that is uh, one of the cranial nerves attaches your your brain to the the heart. And when uh, when it activates, uh, well, it could activate in something called the freeze reaction, which is a different topic. Uh, so when people are completely overwhelmed by something, uh, the heart rate can plummet and go down and stay down, and that's the freeze reaction. You see this in animals. All mammals have some kind of freeze reaction. Um, lizards have a freeze reaction. So the freeze reaction is a very ancient reaction in animals. Uh, that's not the, that is technically parasympathetic, but it's a different kind. Um, turns out that there are two types of parasympathetics, and the, the, the higher kind is what allows us to um, basically process emotion fully and to put our amygdala back to rest. So people normally associate parasympathetics with things like digesting food uh, or sleep. So, and there are where you, you know times of rest do activate your parasympathetics, and so parasympathetics are used for resting and digesting. But in the midst of an emotional activation, parasympathetics can actually rest your amygdala and digest the emotion. So it still does it; it's just at a higher level. The other cool thing about parasympathetics is you can measure it pretty easily. Um, there's a there are iPhone apps that use the camera so you can detect uh, parasympathetic activation of the kind I'm talking about, where it's uh, where your heart rate will drop as you exhale and then rise as you inhale. That pattern of the rising and falling is called coherence. And so there are different apps that can measure um, the heart rate with coherence. Uh, there's also a device called Inner Balance uh, by HeartMath, which I used to have all of my patients purchase because uh, it was such a great way of assessing and seeing their, the, the progress they were making on tuning up their parasympathetic nervous system. So another thing about mindfulness is just doing even 10 minutes a day of simple mindfulness of the breath. At, you know, we're, what's, what's happening when you're doing that is you're essentially turning on parasympathetics because mindfulness always does that and you're holding it on for like 10 minutes, that can increase in general the amount of parasympathetic tone you have all day long. So mindfulness uh, can help with sleep, not because you're gonna be practicing mindfulness as you sleep, but because it's so powerful at activating parasympathetics and those tend to stay on, they linger, the effect lingers. So that's one of the you know, great things about the golden hour that we teach people on optimal work is doing a little bit of mindfulness before an hour of work gives you a parasympathetic activation burst you know, that can then last into the work itself and help you to maintain the best focus you, you know, possible during that hour of work. Okay, Kevin, for my next question, I want to ask, um, it's, it's you know, kind of been troubling me lately. Uh, so it sounds like when we talk about mindfulness and this um, parasympathetics and flipping fear into daring, a lot of what we're talking about is like, is like acceptance, that we have to accept the fear in order to flip it into daring. So we have to be okay with it. Um, but how, how do you reconcile that with what we talked about in the previous episode, um, which is about in, um, approaching the challenge repeatedly? so that you habituate 
the the challenger, the trigger, and the fear gets less and less over time. And I suspect a lot of people um, kind of have this goal that they want to overcome anxiety or reduce their fear, but now you're telling them that to accept it. So, yeah, how do you help people approach this? Maybe it's kind of a paradox or something. I don't know. Yeah, and this the the purpose of the first stage, what we call bronze work, is being able to get used to the triggering of the alarm, to feel the fear fully, and to see that the fear changes as you do that. So that people start to see that whatever they can repeatedly approach gets easier and easier to approach over time. I think that's an important lesson so that they realize it that anxiety is never a fixed thing. It's always totally shapeable, totally malleable. Now we're talking about is if they've done that now with different things, you can generalize that learning and you generalize it by literally feeling the alarm itself. So your attention starts to shift from what's different about every exposure, which is the trigger, to what's common about every exposure, which is the alarm. And the alarm is part of you. It's part of your body. So it's easier to open up and, and to practice accepting it. So when people have enormous amounts of fear, and let's say that all through their house, all through their day, they're avoiding a hundred things a day. So, and they're doing excessive washing and excessive cleaning and not letting this touch that. And so people can have all these accumulated behaviors of these, these you know, avoidance behaviors. At some point when what they need to do is instead of practicing each individual item and doing it again and again and again until there's less fear, it's way easier for them just to practice feeling the fear, liking the feeling, using that as the main object of their awareness. Just like enter into the emotion. And uh, usually in the, you, you reach a stage that sometimes I jokingly call the conflagration. They just have to keep the fire going. And the fire is like the fire of the fear. But the more they learn to keep it going, the more they learn that, in fact, it's not, it's not painful. It's not even that aversive. It's kind of exciting. And they keep on leaning into the excitement. So, you know, I remember um, someone who had uh, become allergic to essentially everything. So, and uh, realized that these allergies were actually just, it was fear. And so he, what, what he would experience with the allergen was particular symptoms that you could have with panic. They're anxiety-related symptoms. And he learned that if he could just approach the supposed allergen, that in fact it habituated very quickly. Um, and then I got an email from him two hours later saying, in the, la in the last 90 minutes, I have ingested every single allergen I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel fantastic. But that was a burst of daring that he felt like, okay, while this is going, I'm just going to keep throwing things on. I'm going to keep trying things. He had already had allergy testing and he had an internal medicine doctor and an allergist telling him that none of these allergies were physiological, just to say. So I'm not saying that everyone with food allergies should be doing anything remotely like this. This is a very unique case, but it proves the point that, and, and it kind of has the spirit that, uh, there is this daring then in welcoming it. But as you do that, what you're pointing out is right. It becomes less and less about habituating triggers because that is what they did back when they had a more negative view of 
the alarm sounding. The more they have a positive experience of the alarm sounding, which is what daring gives them, they, they can actually enjoy it and they see it as exciting. Then the key is keeping that attitude present. So to stay daring and to look for ways of practicing it. Uh, so I think that it's true that you, you, you can end up playing whack-a-mole, that you can get rid of one worry, and then you can do that very effectively, and that worry is gone. But then another worry comes, you have to get rid of that. Another worry comes, you have to get rid of that. But if you just help people with the alarm itself and learn to welcome the, the sensations that it brings, it makes it far easier than to deal with everything all at once. And they, they just need to keep that silver attitude. I see silver work as being let the alarm sound and learn to stay mindful all through it. So again, let there be the simultaneous and sympathetic activation happening at the same time. Um, so amusement parks are great for that. Scary movies are great for that. Anything that people where people can uh, learn to enjoy the sounding of the alarm. Yeah. So, and just a quick practical question, which you may have just answered it, but uh, when you're doing this mindfulness and being mindful of the alarm and activating parasympathetics on top of sympathetics, uh, you do that in the same context that you would have done the earlier bronze work that we talked about last week of just engaging the challenge. So now it's just engaging the challenge with the mindfulness kind of layered on, um, although I guess there are different ways to do exposures exactly. to these challenges. Yep. That's exactly right. And that's why uh, it, it ends up with you have a different intention in doing exposures. Exposures are no longer about getting rid of triggers. Now exposures are simply practice being mindful of the alarm while it's sounding. So again, you treat that anxiety like it's a fire and you dive into the midst of it. So and you learn to feel it from the inside out. That's the purpose now of exposure, which makes it far more simple uh, and easy. It has less chance of going wrong because if you're really, if people get like scared of a trigger and they stop an exposure halfway through, that just confirms it's really a threat. That tends not to happen ever when people are doing this kind of work because they're aiming for the alarm itself. It's not like they're playing a game with the exposure, making sure their alarm doesn't go too high. With this kind of work, you actually don't care how high it goes because you're just accepting it from the inside. And then you learn that the more willing you are to feel it, the less of a problem it can ever be. And it's just giving you energy. And that energy actually is adrenaline. And it can, in fact, help you in important ways to be able to better work right now. Yeah, well, Kevin, I mean, it's a much different vision of mindfulness than, you know, someone sitting calmly in lotus position in front of a lake. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah. so, in, you know, embracing the fear. And so, uh, well, th this is great, Kevin. I just, maybe I just have one last quick question for you, which is, so this is, as we noted, the second part of three. And in the last one, we'll talk, we've talked about bronze work. This one's silver work. The next one about gold work and bringing your ideals into these challenges that we face. Um, so I wondered if you could just briefly talk about how this silver work, this mindfulness and acceptance and daring and f flipping um, flipping fear into daring, activating parasympathetics, how this prepares us to bring our ideals into the situation. Yeah, because when you're, when you're having your sympathetic nervous system giving you adrenaline, 
then just using it. Now, adrenaline does supercharge mindfulness. So the work of attending to the feeling is enhanced by the feeling itself because what you're feeling is adrenaline. So there is something there that just using the adrenaline that comes from leaning into a challenge so you can practice mindfully welcoming the sensation already is su supercharged. But that's a kind of growth that is purely internal and it's just learning how to be accepting what is there and even be you know willing to have it there. So you're, you're practicing willingness to let the adrenaline fully be there. That I think is the condition then for being able to actually use the adrenaline, to use it as a means of stretching yourself, enabling a stretch so you can use it to grow. Now, adrenaline doesn't just have an internal function, it has a kind of transcendent function. It can, let, it can give you the energy that you need to achieve a new level of growth that you couldn't have achieved without the adrenaline. So that's where I think you move then from feeling the fear with bronze work to feeling daring with silver work to actually having hope the, you know, that you're hoping now for some great good that the adrenaline is going to help you to attain. And then it can be a way of propelling your growth. The goal then is not, it's not about even using triggers anymore to get used to, you know, having to doing the silver work. Now it's more about engaging real life challenges so that you can get the adrenaline you need to grow in the midst of them. So that's, that's I think, the true height and that's gold work. Yeah, and that will be, we'll go much more in depth on that next week. So there's a perfect preview for it. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you, Sharif. All right, we'll be back next week. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you enjoyed our conversation and you're looking for more in-depth guidance, check out OptimalWork.com, our platform of content, tools, and exercises that will help you thrive at work and beyond. See you next week.